Good morning. This is Monday, November the 21st, 2022. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. And today I am speaking with Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York. And this is part of our LSAT Life podcast because as goes LSAT, so goes life. And certainly there have been some very interesting announcements in the last week or so that reflect and impact the whole climate of law admissions. Maybe not so much today, but certainly uh, going forward next year, years to follow. And I thought it'd be interesting to have a discussion about where we see this going and how it might impact the way you want to think about the law school decision. So welcome, Keith. Welcome, Jake. How are you today? Doing well, good. thanks. Thanks, John. Okay. Um, Maybe start with Keith. Uh, so we've got two main announcements for law school admissions. Do you want to just kind of outline them, summarize them, and then we'll begin our discussion? Sure. I guess you're talking about the uh, ABA voting uh, to not make the LSAT uh, required. And then also we've got the uh, decision by a bunch of major top law schools to pull out of the U.S. news ranking Right. Um, both of those are bombshells, really, right uh, right at the same time. Yeah, and right at the same time. Um, maybe start with the U.S. news thing. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, I've, you know, you know I've been involved in this uh, both directly, indirectly, and peripherally for, God, many, many years. And I can tell you that U.S. Uh, news ranking has been around for as long as I've been involved in this type of thing. So uh, it's definitely part of the woodwork. Um, Jake, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, does this thing even play? And what role does it even play? Well, it plays an enormous role, and it has in graduate school admissions and undergraduate admissions for years and years and years. Um, it, it's and you know, as with so much standardization, its intentions are good, and the impact becomes incredibly damaging to the process. Uh, and and when you when you look at the way that people talk about US, U.S. News and World Report and the way that it affects uh, the the schools and the admissions offices as much as those who are applying, uh, it, it's really it's really quite amazing. the 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 problem we have is that when we try to standardize and rank schools, we make evident what the metrics are by which we're we're ranking by which we're measuring them right so we say okay uh, how do you measure how good uh, a college is well you take a look at their uh, professor to student ratio you take a look at their admissions rate you take a look at all of these quantifiable metrics and we say okay based on all of these things we're going to determine a ranking but once you release that ranking it incentivizes schools to chase the ranking and so they start to manipulate the system in a way that only benefits their ranking. It doesn't actually benefit students. So you have schools that artificially affect their own admissions rates in order to climb the rankings. You have schools that reduce class sizes to the detriment of those who would otherwise be able to get in to reduce admissions rates and to climb rankings. And so you end up with a system in which the schools don't actually serve the function they're intended to serve. Instead, they're only chasing their better rankings and thus, of course, more donations and larger endowments and you know more competitive marketing strategies uh, and and they completely lose sight of what it is that they're actually trying to accomplish, which is serving a student body that intends to learn while they're there. Good God. Yeah. 
that way. I wonder how it survived as long as it has. Um, Keith, are you in generally agree with Jake's assessment of that or? Yes. Uh, I, I think that U.S. News gave a lot of transparency to something that was opaque, but the transparency also gave them a way to manipulate the game. And schools that have been egregious offenders of that are schools like Florida and Texas A&M, where they're just buying high LSAT scores to game the rankings, and they don't really have the job placement or the bar passage rate to justify their ranking. They don't, you know, they, they, they just haven't concerned themselves with the metrics that don't play heavily into the rankings, even though they're important for for students. Now you mentioned the uh, uh, the bar passage rate uh, a moment ago, and you know we'll talk about that separately. But I'm assuming it's your view that the quality of a law school should be related to uh, the percentage of people who pass the bar exam. Would yes. Oh, I think the bar passage rates are abysmal, and I put that squarely on the shoulders of the law schools. I think they're derelict in their duties to the students, and I think the whole thing has become a huge fraud, to be perfectly honest. If it wasn't already, it is now. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we, we definitely need to have a separate a separate discussion on that. All right, so... You know, I'm reading the same stuff you are. So what I'm reading is that it was first Yale and then Harvard. And then I think a couple of other highly ranked schools have yeah, said George, Georgetown, yeah. Columbia, Berkeley, I think, yeah. Berkeley. Right. So we got Stanford. four or five, six schools. OK. Yeah. Uh, name brand schools, schools that people would like to go to top of people's application list, I suppose. And these schools have said, hey, you know what? And we're not going to participate in this anymore. Um, I guess two questions. One, what what do you discern as their reason for that? And secondly, does it even matter? Uh, Jake, what, what what reason they give for this? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I the 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 pro forma reasons, and I and I hope that they're honest about this. Are the reasons I just gave, right? That they that they believe that that participating in the ranking incentivizes them in the wrong way. Do do I believe? Do I believe that it's going to make a difference? Well, if you take a look at the schools that are choosing not to participate anymore, those are all schools within the top 20 law schools, according to their rankings, and, and many of them top 10 or even top five. Um, and presumably, the incentives for all of the other schools to try to chase rankings design them to point themselves at Yale, at Stanford, at Harvard and say, I want to be more like them, because if I am, then I'll climb the rankings. If Yale, Harvard, Stanford, um, Columbia, whoever else don't participate anymore and aren't reporting to U.S. news, well, suddenly those schools don't have anybody to chase. Now, we have a problem, which is that U.S. news can choose to rank them anyway. Uh, and and a good half, I, I forget exactly what the percentage is, like, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of the score for law schools has nothing to do with these metrics, but has to do with reputational score, which is even worse. Right. Because then they go out and poll lawyers and they say, what are the best schools? And so there, there's all this groupthink that happens where, like, you just constantly swirl around these same schools. Right. So when we go out to, you know, uh uh, uh, you know, card carrying lawyers out in New York and Boston and San Francisco and elsewhere and say, what are the best schools in the country? They're going to answer these schools anyway. 
right? So we we have a problem, which is that it's sort of a self-perpetuating old boys club where the schools that have the reputation because that's where everybody went are going to continue to be at the top of the rankings. And they they maintain this uh, false sense that they somehow provide better value and that gets communicated to people regardless of whether they're reporting or not. So will no. it have an effect? I have never understood, just from a common sense point of view, that if you've only been to one law school, how in the world you're qualified or, you know, your perception of what's the best law school could be worth anything. Well, look, I'm I'm a partner at Feldman, Feldman and Feldman in, in New York City. And I look around at all the partners and all the associates and the ones that I like. And guess what? They all went to Harvard and Yale. So that must be the best school because those are the lawyers that I like. But the problem is that we forget that the reason that we've got all Harvard and Yale people is that the partners and the founders of the firm are Harvard and Yale people. And so they went out and hired and that was their network. So it, it, it it's you know, it's a snowball effect. There's nothing to be done about this. Michigan firms hire Michigan folks, uh, sure. you know, Notre Dame firms hire Notre Dame folks, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you 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 simply don't have a diverse enough sense of experience. It's not about where I went to school. It's the fact that where I went to school determined where I ended up practicing and determined who my colleagues were. Right. Well, at a bare minimum, uh, do you think that... Uh, the decision by, I'm just going to refer to Yale, and I, by using the word Yale, I'm referring to the group, okay? Do you think that this decision by Yale will cause some people to question whether the metrics they're using in these rankings uh, matter or whether they're, uh, you know, they're even looking at the right considerations? Or do you think, yes. just, you think it will? Yes. No, it will definitely affect, it, it'll affect the schools first. And then it'll affect it'll affect users afterward. I mean, very clearly, Yale, I, I, I have no doubt that the admissions offices and and the higher ups and the administrations at these universities had uh, many, many weeks or months of conversation about this behind closed doors before this happened. And they all decided that Yale would be first. This wasn't a matter of everybody scrambling at Harvard and Stanford saying, oh, my God, Yale decided not to do it. We're oh, not yeah. going to oh, do clearly, it. Clearly. No chance. Clearly. Yeah, no I, I chance. Agree. So so this was a determined effort. And it was decided among all of these universities that Yale would lead, probably because Yale has been ranked number one for as long as it has in U.S. News and World Report. And so it makes sense for them to be the ones to announce that's sending a message. It's sending a message out to the world that these rankings are B.S., um, because the person, the, the the institution that's benefiting most from it is the one that's rejecting it. Well, you know, they were already questioning these rankings because at, for at least a year now, we've heard so many messages from the ABA signaling that they are losing confidence in the LSAT. And I've I've been contacting a lot of people at LSAC to get an idea of how they view this or you know, what their response to all this is. And they just don't want to talk about it. And that's the biggest signal to me that they know this is this is a big, big problem. I think the LSAT's going away personally. I think this is the beginning of the end of the LSAT. Wow, uh, that's interesting. I think it's the well, it's clearly the beginning of the end of everybody taking the LSAT. Okay, I think that's pretty clear. I think it's also uh, helping GRE uh, tremendously, right? Because, you know, the decision was, of course, not require a valid and objective admissions test, I think was the language. 
Um, and of course, uh, if schools are making it optional, I think it's just as easy for them to make the GRE optional. So I think you're likely to see, see that as well. Um, but I have a, uh, I have a lot of trouble seeing that the LSAT is going to be going away entirely. I think it's going to likely play a very, very different role. But before we get into that, uh, before we hit the record button, Jake and I were chatting about this. Jake, say somebody's most competitive attribute in the world is their LSAT score. What advice would you give them? Take it now, get it on the record, and apply this cycle. Don't wait around because we don't know. I mean, look, it, it could be that this takes two, three, four years, but we also don't know what the climate is going to be in two, three, four years. This happened in 2019 and 2020 with the SAT. Uh, and it's very clear right now that undergraduate college admissions are an absolute mess with regard to the volume of applications that students are, are sending out and the degree to which it is difficult to even target yourself at a group of schools that you want to go to. Uh, admissions rates are so low in undergraduate right now, simply because it's such a... Um, you know, it's such a veiled process and 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 holistic admissions is so difficult to understand. Um, I, I think now is the time. If you're a test taker, do it now. Get it on the record now. Apply now. Because in two years, it could be that law school admissions looks like college admissions does now, where you submit a resume, you have to write a bang up essay, and then you have to go around and you have to interview and you have to demonstrate interest at every school that you're uh, that you're curious about and go through a, a really tortuous process in order to find yourself. In the, and as bad as things are now with law school, it's going to be far, far worse. I agree with you. And I would even add, I mean, I think the ones who are the clear high LSAT scores should get in and out now. But I'm I think I would even ex expand that to the ones who are in the top 25 percentile even. OK, I think probably should consider getting in now because tell you something years ago years and years ago back in the day i was on the admissions committee where i went to law school and they had a sector of the committee that dealt with what were called special applicants and special applicants were often second career applicants but the point was the lsat score was not going to be the main criterion okay they were going to be looking at all kinds of other things and what struck me about that was how much more time it took to deal with those applicants and how much more they were scrutinized and that. And I, can, I think I can safely predict that getting rid of the LSAT is going to make the application process, I think, just as expensive, if not more, because, you know, the personal statement and the whole application is going to become critical, you know, for reasons that are obvious and for the reasons that I think Jake has explained here. And uh, and I think and I think a very, you know, very much less predictable as well. So I don't know. What about you, Keith? You think that people who are strong LSAT test takers should get in and out now? Uh, I guess if you're committed <clears throat> to going to law school. But another way to view all this is to say, is this a healthy educational environment where all of this is going on? Is this how you want to commit your time and money for the next three years? I think it's a good opportunity to take a, a check and say, wait, there's other ways that I can 
push my career forward other than going to law school. I find it to be a really dark time for uh, for applicants. And I really do think that LSAC is to blame for a lot of this because they tell us that the LSAT has um, these score bands. Your score is comparable to a score plus or minus three points from yours. Well, why are they reporting score differences that are meaningless? The schools use those score differences as if they mean something. We have a completely arbitrary system of, of differentiation between people who are statistically identical, and it's LSAC's fault. Yeah. <laughs> so I think yeah. the LSAT deserves to go away because they are not being responsive to what the, the, what the law schools need from the test. They don't you know, need that, 60 score bands. It's really it's really interesting because there are standardized tests out there that report scores in stainines. And those stain, you know, they they divide up the, the score into nine stainines, but that the center one, five, represents 20% of all scores. And then four and six represent 15%. And 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 right. So it sort of works like a standard deviation, right? And and that would be far more meaningful, right? You're a six. That means you you're you're somewhere between you know, a half and and one and a half standard deviations from the mean for that particular administration of the LSAT. God, that would be far more. Uh, it would communicate far more about a student's performance than an arbitrary 165 that we're attempting to standardize across two decades of LSAT scores when we know that that's absurd. Right. I think it, it should it be more like totally the MCAT. Absurd. I mean, I, you know, all the years that the LSAT is in part of my consciousness, I mean, you look back at it and you think, I mean, how could this have gone on? Not not an admissions test, but in this very rigid way, you know, yeah. these scores all these years is is really incredible to me. You know what, John? The, you know, when when you were talking about making the process more expensive, I think we've got two separate um, uh, pressures here coming from from what we're trying to achieve. Because one of them, one of one of the things that these schools is going to feel is the the volume of applications and the, their ability to process them in a meaningful way. And that would, in a market sense, drive prices, drive costs up. But the other thing, it's very clear that part of this is about equity and about um, uh, you know sort of fair access to legal education. I mean. Um, What's her name at Yale? Uh, uh, Heather Gherkin said very clearly that the problem with U.S. News and World Report is that it it disincentivizes the kinds of programs that the law schools are trying to support, which is public interest and, uh, and need based aid and working class students. And if that's what they're trying to achieve, how can they then go and support a system that will increase the price and the, and the cost of access? going to be a oh. mess trying to come up with a system that actually achieves the thing that they're trying to achieve, which well, they should try to achieve, of course. But yeah, and that may well be, you know, why the LSAT has survived as long as it has. I mean, I've always seen the LSAT. I mean, for years and years and years, uh, you know, when asked about this, I said, well, you know, why do they use the LSAT? Well, the reason is so they don't have to look at the rest of the application. Right. <laughs> and, you know, in, in many instances. And they download the cost to the applicant, you know, for the LSAT, right? Because I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If you come in objectively with high grades and a high LSAT score, you're going to get into law school, right? I mean, maybe not at every school, but you're definitely going to get into law school. And I think it's probably fair to say that if the, re the reverse is true, uh, 
low grades, low LSAT scores, you know, you're going to have a problem, right? So the application process, I think, really only has had any meaning in terms of an application process and sort of the middle, the middle range of students. Would you agree with that? Meaning the ones who are not at the extremes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's probably true. It's probably true. You know, it's it's hard though. You know, if you if you put yourself in the position of being the the admissions officer at a law school, and you say, "Look, we've got people who have demonstrated interest in these, you know, non-big law, non-highly competitive areas of law. What is their incentive for not accepting them? Right? Even if they don't have great grades, even if they don't have great LSAT scores, these are areas of law that we need lawyers to pursue." And if the programs are designed in that way and these students are willing to spend the money on tuition, I'm not sure I understand why we disincentivize acceptance of those students. You know, Jake, a lot of this is driven by big law. I mean, we have this shift in the bar exam. Over half the states have gone away from a state-specific bar exam to the UBE. The stated rationale for this is that we have lawyers who need multi-jurisdictional practice. Really? Which lawyers are those? The big law lawyers. I don't know any small lawyers who need to be licensed in multiple jurisdictions. So the whole thing just irritates me. This is a big softball to big law. Here you go. Here's a bunch of people who can be licensed in multiple jurisdictions, even if it screws the local jurisdictions. It right. just ticks me off. And, and 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 this is all this comes back to the rankings, right? Because how does US News and World Report determine a portion of the rankings of these law schools, how many of their graduates go on to big law, go on to right. high, you know, uh, uh, high, high earnings careers, right? Big so law's driving it. Yeah. So even these small law schools for whom there are only one or two students that go on to one of those fancy firms, man, if we could get two or three or four or five more that do it, yeah. we would climb the rankings. Exactly. Instead of being good at what you're what what you're designed to do, instead of, of spe highly spe I mean, this is this is really where it comes down to. Right. And we've had this conversation in undergraduate uh, circles for years. Right. Instead of every school being everything to every student body, be good at what you're good at. Right. We don't ask Bennington College to to train future engineers. Right. Bennington College isn't designed for that. So why should every law school be designed for the same kind of legal profession? Well, Makes this no is sense. a problem largely uh, the ABA, right, in the sense that, uh, you know, to be eligible to do the bar exam, right, you have to graduate from an ABA approved law school. Or maybe it's the maybe it's the licensing process for lawyers to begin with. I don't know. But clearly, you know, all of these institutions play a very, very significant role in defining the terms for what it takes to become a licensed lawyer. And, you know, like all these processes, it benefits a certain group of people and not others. I mean, what do you think about? So, so I mean, let me ask you very, very directly here. Um, what's the problem with the LSAT? I mean, why shouldn't everybody be required to do it? Uh, that's a hard question. I mean, there is no problem with it inherently, but like everything else, right, when you uh, when you reveal the metric, right? This is the Goodhart law. When the measure becomes the target, it's not a good measure anymore. We all know what the measure is for getting into law school. It's getting a good LSAT score. It's not a good measure anymore because suddenly we give advantage to those who already had advantage. It doesn't equalize the playing field at all. It's not the great equalizer. People with means 
do better on the LSAT than people without. It doesn't achieve what it's trying to achieve. Because they see. hire Jake and Keith. Correct. I see two problems with the LSAT. Number one, I think the law schools use the scores inappropriately. And yeah. we can put that back on LSAC for reporting them that way. But there's definitely misuse of the numbers. But the other problem, I think, is that um, there is so much noise. There's so many people teaching this test who don't know the fundamentals of logic. They just know multiple choice. And so you get a lot of people with good LSAT scores who don't actually know the material that the test was intended to measure. I can teach someone to get a high score with a bunch of tricks. I did that for years. I've moved away from that teaching style, but I know it works. And I know that's what a lot of the young tutors in the group are doing. They're getting people artificially high scores that are not going to serve them well in law school because they're not learning to read and write well. Well, if nothing else, I think the LSAT is a not unreasonable measure of your reading and reasoning skill at that particular time in your life. I think that is probably that is it, probably it, sh it should I would I, I'm going to I'm going to modify it should be. Right. That's what it's designed to be. And that's what it should be, except that because it is multiple choice and because it affords you the opportunity to skirt those skills in favor of far more superficial skills, you can get away with scoring. I mean, I know people that have scored as high as over 170 who don't actually understand the test. I agree. I think yeah, that might have been I me. I always thought that my high test scores were reflective of my understanding of any of something. You've disappointed me. No, 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 no. First of all, let's be clear, right? I'm not interpolating you into that. It you I, you you may understand it. I, I'm not saying any one person doesn't, but I have plenty of data points to show me that there are people that can get right answers all the time who don't understand it. And 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 furthermore, there are other people, you know, students of ours in the last couple of years who have not had 170 scores or 175 scores, who have scored in the 150s, but report back an unbelievably sort of satisfying understanding of what they're doing in 1L and 2L because of the way that we've taught them to read and because of the way we've taught them to analyze rhetoric. And in yeah. that way, it's not the high score. It's the way you approach the reading that matters. All right. So let me ask you a simple question, each of you. Do you think that there's a, a correlation between high LSAT scores and performance in law school? Yes. 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 It's not as strong as it should be, but it's there. And the bar exam is statistically correlated with LSAT scores. So until they get rid of the multiple choice component of the bar exam, I think it's unwise to head off to law school with poor testing skills. I know, uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of bar prep right now, and I can tell you that 80 or 90% of the, the retakers that I'm working with have told me I didn't perform well on the LSAT. And I'm just like, of course you didn't, because if you had, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Of course you didn't. True. All right. So, so this is the bar <laughs> exam, I haven't done it for so many years. So it's still the multi-state, multiple choice. Is that what it is? They've uh, modified it quite a bit, but there is a heavy multiple choice component worth uh, at about 40% of the score. Okay. All right. So, so to that extent, anyway, uh, not only do we have the same 
emphasis on reading skills, but we also have some carryover in format as well. Are the answer choices as well designed on the multi-state multi bar exam as they are on the LSAT? Oh, I was just telling Jake about this recently, and I've been telling a lot of students about this. The MBE is designed exactly like the LSAT in the sense that you don't really have to grapple with the content of the question. You need to understand the logic of the question. And for some of my bar prep students, this is a totally foreign concept. It never occurred to them to think about an LSAT question in terms of its logic rather than its content. And uh, so I'm having a real uphill battle with the MBE students this time around. The bar passage rates were very low. I've got a lot more clients than I have had in the past. And man, this is tough sledding. I wish I had worked with these students three or four years ago and helped them with the LSAT instead. Why? Uh, so I'm understanding you'd be saying the bar passage rate is down, correct? Yeah, it's pretty low. I don't low. understand uh, why it would just fall suddenly. Well, this year is very odd because the people taking the bar exam now were some of the most heavily impacted by the pandemic. They spent most of their 1L year doing remote learning, and that was the first semester that that happened. I think that's a lost class. They were just not taught well because the professors weren't prepared for that, you know, that situation. Boy, they're struggling. I'm teaching them their 1L courses is what's going on. And I've never had to do that for bar prep. It's always been a matter of review. But there are students who don't know contracts, don't know torts. Well, it sounds like there's some value to live law school classes then. I think that it can be done remotely, but I think that law school is so resistant to change that there was no plan in place for remote learning. Ninety, you know, 95% of the professors had no intention to become technologically savvy until they had to. Well, uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, actually in the UK, teaching the graduate tax program at a rather well-known university and he was thrown into having to make that change in the pandemic and he just you know said it was an absolute nightmare you know because the online teaching was so different from uh you know the whole classroom dynamic and that but you, you but know who this was not a nightmare for the tutors because we've all <laughs> been teaching for years none of us have been writing uh, doing scholarship ignoring our students whatever the heck the professors are doing we weren't doing that we were face to face with our students and we made the transition immediately to online learning the professors didn't because they're not teaching <laughs> well i think i think there's definitely some truth to that all right so back to this whole law admissions thing um Although it's impossible to predict, uh, let's try a little. What do you think law school admissions will look like three years from now? Jake, you want to start? What do I? Th so my prediction for what's actually going to happen, I yeah. think there will. I think there will be an LSAT. I think there will be a ranking system, whether it's U.S. News World Report or somebody else. I think, um, you know, I, I think, I think we are. I think these systems are resilient and and they bounce back toward what benefits those who are currently holding the reins. 
and big law and the universities are holding the reins and they have incentives and they have market incentives, even if those in charge, deans of law schools, heads of admissions don't want it that way. Ultimately, these things bounce back toward the mean. Um, I think that's where we're going to end up. I well, think will the LSAT will be requiring the LSAT. Will schools be requiring the LSAT? No, I think largely schools will not require the LSAT or the GRE, but people will be taking them anyway. And their De facto, yeah. taking them will be what? Huh? And their reason for taking them anyway will be what? Because everybody else is taking them because they'll be scared not to be able to compete because they think that it's the easy way, right? Those with high high grades will need their LSATs to compete against other people with high grades. People with low grades are going to need them to make up for their low grades. People in middle grades are going to be aspiring toward more selective schools, and they're going to take them to try to bump themselves up that extra notch. It's so going to be exactly like it is. No chance of there being a world without LSAT tutors. I don't I don't think so. It's not what it's not what I want. It's not what I want for, for the world for undergraduate and graduate and professional school admissions. This is this is not what I think is best. But I, I just don't see a world in which we can work against 100 years of momentum on these fronts that has clearly shown itself to bear all of the criticism and all of the lawsuits and all of the other things that we know is wrong with it. Ultimately, these are, for the most part, private universities with large endowments and huge law firms with enormous amounts of money who are going to influence this thing toward in, in the ways that most benefit them. Keith, your thoughts? you agree with Jake? Or? Pretty much. I mean, I think that law school has become a big sorting hat for big law, and anything that interferes with that has to go away. And so if this doesn't affect the ability of law schools to provide ranking ranked students for the big law firms to hire, then it'll be okay. But as soon as this starts to interfere with that, that pathway, then I think we just go back to the way things were. I mean, you notice the schools that are doing this have nothing to lose. Is Yale going to lose prestige because U.S. News doesn't rank them number one? Oh, no. probably increase it because they because they don't participate. Right. So you don't see schools rank 30 or 40 saying, yep, we're out, too. I Not don't yet. See any of them. Not yet. I mean, look, this this happened in undergraduate. Right. We started with Bates College was the first one to say SAT optional. There are a bunch that followed suit. Then the University of California system decided it was going to upend the whole thing 20 years ago. Um, and then over the course of the last 20 years, we went from a handful to 20 or 30 schools to 100 schools. And now we're talking about nearly 2000 universities across North America that don't require SAT or ACT. And yet there are 4 million administrations of the SAT every year in the United States. And well, what yet I'm talking about is the rankings like the LSATs. I don't see that going away because it's too useful to the schools unless there's a, a replacement for it. And I do think they're losing confidence in the LSAT. And unless there's a, a leadership change there, I think that will continue. They'll continue to lose confidence in the LSAT. Maybe the GRE will emerge as a replacement. That is difficult for me to predict because I don't think the GRE is a good test, but no, something terrible. is wrong with the LSAT and everybody is moving away from it in a very, very strange concerted way. Yeah. I mean, they have just continuously signaled we don't like that test for the last year. 
they have stated over and over and over again, it's optional. You don't have to do it. We're going to, I mean, they have continued to release these press releases saying we don't like the LSAT. <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. But, you know, th this has happened over the course of the last three years in New York City with regard to the specialized high schools. They have their own entrance exam. And there are eight of these schools, and they're the most highly sought after high schools in the city, including Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. And they got rid of the tests in an in an effort for equity. And there was a huge revolt from certain communities, and everybody was cheering from other communities. And guess what? The admissions gap got worse. It got worse. So we have to we have to replace it with something. If we're gonna get rid of the LSAT, fine. How are we going to create the the situation that we want, right? If if we believe the dean of Yale Law and we believe that what they want is a more equitable admissions process and a more diverse community and a and an incentivized community that will pursue things other than big law, great. Show me how that works. Show me how you get from A to B without simply just saying, forget you ranking system and forget you LSAT. We're just going to wing it and figure it out on the other side. I think leadership change at LSAC would really be a, a, a strong signal that we're changing our philosophy. We want to do something different and we're, you know, we're, we're bringing in new people to make it happen. I just have no confidence in the current leadership there. Zero. No. This is a test that I've really respected for 20 years. And the last five in particular, I've become more and more disappointed with every single move they make. And I believe personally that the accommodations train has completely come off the rails. <laughs> and I, I strongly question the validity of the results of any LSAT score. Right now, I just don't think it means very much. I mean, uh, you know, a, a, apart from like a 10 point difference. Yeah, that's meaningful. Five points. I give it zero, zero meaning. Sure. Sure. I mean, look, give any but and this is I mean, first of all, I want to pre preface this by saying anybody who who needs accommodations should get accommodations. Accommodations are appropriate for the people for whom they are appropriate. But when we have a situation in which there are doctors who are writing accommodation letters nilly willy uh, willy nilly willy nilly willy nilly for people that ask for them and we end up with folks who are taking time and a half or double time or paper and pencil or whatever other accommodations are necessary given the current climate given double time people who are not neurodivergent people who are not learning learning divergent have an advantage they do and if you want to see the spokespeople from LSAC shut down fast. Call them and ask them about accommodations. Boy, that gets them to get off the phone faster than anything. They do not want to talk about this. And uh, yeah. I think that I know why, <laughs> because they're having a big, so big problem. So there are more and more people are getting accommodations. This is what you're telling me? Yep. Oh, many, many people to the point where they're having trouble dealing with the uh, number of requests at most universities. That's interesting we, because when I was doing this, there were very few. Very yeah. few. Right. This happened. Uh, and again, th th this follows the trend. 15 years ago, this train started on the SAT, where suddenly we went from, you know, the rare case where somebody needed time and a half or double time or multiple day or whatever it was. Um, or having a a, a, um, a ghostwriter for the test to 
every child who was struggling to score well went and got a neuropsych eval and ended yep. up with accommodations. And it's those same students that are now requ requesting it on the LSAT. So th this doesn't surprise me at all. But now what we what we end up having to say is either we should just make it an untimed test, right? And just everybody take as much time as you want because there's simply too much noise. Or we need to lock it way back down. But but again, you know, once you make the, the, the metric known, it ceases to be a good measure. Once you know what is necessary in order to get accommodations, people will find ways to go and get accommodations. So they get they get time and a half or something. Or, or double time. Double. Yeah. Like, well, why would everybody want to spend twice as much time doing an LSAT as they had to? That's incredible. Games. On, on logic games, there are folks who can get right answers by brute forcing, but simply take too long. I've now, certainly had students who have been in that yeah, situation. Uh, on the issue of the games, again, I uh, you know most of what I know about this these days is just from looking at the at the LSAT study group. But um, apparently, they're getting rid of logic games, changing it, or what's what's the deal on that? I've seen some noise about that. There's like this tiny, we get tiny bits of information along the way. At first they were getting rid of them. Then they were going to change them. Now there's going to be some kind of pilot program, but we don't know what it is that's changing. They won't tell us. We have no information about how significantly different it is. And if we take this test and other tests as our sort of evidence or, or analogous evidence, the changes that they're purporting to make are probably going to be smaller than we think they are. Yeah. Well, I, I think that all these institutions, including law services, I think what they're actually quite good at is making it seem like small changes are meaningful and large. And this may be because, because so little changes it has changed over the years. But, you know, listening to you talk about this, uh, it seems to me that what you're really saying is that whether you see this as a problem or not, is that the whole law thing, the access to law is driven by the large law firms and the ABA and this sort of thing. And this change in the, the LSAT is really just a, a, you know, it's sort of sort of an illumination of that. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there, we can only know from the outside, right? We can only look and, and analyze and draw our conclusions based on our experience. But, you know, here we are three people with decades of experience among us. And I can say with reasonable certainty from the standardized testing perspective and the admissions perspective, this is nothing new, right? This has happened many, many times in many, many forums over the course of the last two decades. And fundamentally, we're still in the same place we were. So, you know what I would advise somebody, if I were a student trying to grapple with all this, I think I would say, first of all, forget the LSAT, work on learning to read and reason better and enjoy what you're doing in school so you're going to get good grades. And see law school admissions as just, you know, one possible thing among the very many things that you could do with your life. And if you get into law school, as I often used to say to people when they tell me I got in, I'd say, well, is that good news or is that bad news? Because you don't have to really do any one particular thing. But I think that those who imagine they're completely committed to this and who do have the high test scores probably should get in right now. While the admissions officers are trained 
to give a lot of weight to those high LSAT scores. That would be my advice. What would your advice be? Same. If you're good at the LSAT, get in now because we don't know what's coming down the pipe. Now, let's let's make it even broader. If if you're good at something and you want to do it, don't wait around. Just do it. You can't know what's going to happen in a year or two years. So don't try to game the system because chances are you're going to be wrong. We can't predict that. Right. And I think that's also, by the way, a principle for doing well on the LSAT, which is this. Focus on what you do know much more than what you don't know. That's right. And I think, you know, and that's why to some extent approaches to LSAT reflect good approaches to life as well. Well, I don't know how much of a change this is going to make. It actually occurs to me, final question I'll ask you is this, is do you think that in a perverse way, an unexpected way, this could actually make LSAT scores more important than they've been to date? Short term, for sure. For the next year, definitely. Um, past that, unclear. I think it could. You know, earlier when you said, why would people continue to take the LSAT if it's not required? My, uh, my thought was because it will be a de facto requirement. I mean, it may not be a stated requirement, but the applicants who have the strongest chance of getting in will be those with the high LSAT scores. So why wouldn't you take it if that's a way to improve your your application? So I right. don't think that, I mean, the incentive will still be for people to do everything they possibly can to get in, including taking the LSAT, whether it's required or not. Yeah, here, here's an, here's a simple analogy for the folks out there, right? Is calculus required for high school students? No, of course not. Should you take, should everybody take calculus? Maybe not. But if you can get, take calculus and get an A, you should take it. It's going to increase your chances of getting into school. The same is true of LSAT, even if it's not a requirement. If you can do it and do it well, it'll add to your resume. That's it. Yeah, I, I I think that's right. And and my prediction is that it's actually going to increase the demand for good LSAT tutors. Mm. That it's going to, in a very strange way, a transition to something that is going to be even more important in law school admissions, uh, et cetera. But we'll have to see. I also see, though, a growing market for uh, good law school admission consultants. Uh, who can help people think their way through this stuff. And definitely the the quality of the law school application file is going to have to improve, I think, a good deal right across the board. And I think to some extent, the LSAT requirement has obscured that because I think it is true that given uh, a situation of high enough grades and LSAT scores, you probably have to worry less about the academic marketing aspect of this than you might. But we will see. It's been a lot of interesting news in any case. I mean, more interesting news about the law school admissions process than I can remember for a very long time. Yeah. Any closing thoughts on this? It's a fun time to be an LSAT tutor. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And I'm sure it's a stressful time to be an LSAT taker. Just oh, yeah. Keep, keep your head about you. Do what you know how to do. Don't worry too much about trying to manipulate things just do your best send in your applications your, your ability to get in has more to do with whether the admissions officer had a good cup of coffee right before or than it than it does about any of the minutiae that you're worried about so just oh, yeah this is like 
This is like Hollywood here. I mean, uh, you can't take it personally every time you get a rejection. No. Yeah, but something you say, uh, Jake, makes me want to perhaps close with the following comment. Um, Law school applicants see this only from their, their perspective, their narrow perspective. It might be worth considering what this looks like from the point of view of a law school admissions officer who has to deal with hundreds of applications every year, you know, read personal statements and things like that. I mean, that's who your audience really is. And I think people do not do that. They do not do that. And if they did, they thought, how is this playing out, you know, in many different ways? I think it would actually help them put together better applications. Future podcast. Future podcast, absolutely. Future I think podcast. That's very good. Oh, definitely. What do they want in the personal statement is something I talk about a lot. It's like people don't even believe there's another human on the other end of that when they uh, write these you, things. You put that so well, Keith. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a little kinder, perhaps, than, than you are. But I, let me put it this way. In my experience, law school applicants do not have a clue who their audience is and have no understanding that the person reading is an actual living, breathing human being with a life, you know, and problems and biases. And they also don't understand. I mean, you know, my experience from being on a law school admissions committee, both personally, but as an observer, is that in under five minutes, if that, People present, you know, somebody reading that file is going to have uh, a sense of presumptively whether you're in the ballpark or not. And that's all it takes. Yep. So, yeah, future podcast for sure. Well, okay. So, how would people get a hold of you to get more of that Keith and Jake wisdom individually <laughs> you- or collectively? Uh, so you can find me at nexusacademics.com or at uh, triplereview.online, which is our uh, joint program, mine and Keith's. It's pretty tough to get a hold of me right now if you're not studying for the bar exam. So give me a few months. Give me till February. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's great. Well, thanks for uh, spending this hour with me today to talk about this great discussion. I love your insights. Thanks, John. Thanks, Appreciate John. It. Okay.